Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul builds up this letter describing uh, just the prominence and the greatness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And as he does so, he makes this turn in chapter 3 where he reminds this church that who Jesus is is not something just to be observed, but it affects us. And he does this by framing the rest of the letter with this phrase, you have been raised with Christ. So last week, this week, the next couple weeks, as we end the letter, we're, we're understanding that terminology. What does it mean to be a person, a community that has been raised with Christ? How, do, how does our life change? How do our relationships change? Uh, and, and here's Paul's major thesis here, is that the spiritual status needs to result in a relational reality. I'm going to say that again. The spiritual status that you've been raised with Christ needs to manifest itself in a relational reality. The most spiritual things that we can do are relational. How we are changed by the love of God is shown by how we love people. And so Paul starts to unpack this idea of what does it mean that we've set our hearts, set our minds, that we've been raised with Christ. And last week we talked about there's, there's something of us that needs to be taken off, our old self, our earthly nature. But there's also something in, of us that needs to be put on. That's what this week is about. It's not just enough to have demo day, just to go and rip out the cabinets and say that doesn't belong here if there's no reconstruction if there's no renovation. And so although there is a vital part of a follower of Jesus's life that involves stripping away layers that don't belong, there is just as significantly a part of our life that needs to be, what do we put on? What does our life consist of? And that's kind of where we arrive at this portion of the letter, is how do we live as someone who's been raised with Christ. We've talked about what needs to come off, the sin that needs to be put to death, and then this week, this is what we put on. So Colossians 3, 12-17 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God, the Father, through Him. And so there is this 
I mean, this is one of just the most rich passages of Scripture. If you're looking for a passage to memorize, I'd encourage you maybe to consider this one. There's so much depth to what Paul is saying of this is what you are to look like. This is the new life we are to put on and walk in. And so three things. Uh, Number one, it's understanding that we are the beloved. Number two, that we are to be loving. And thirdly, that we are to be living. And so Paul walks through these themes in this section. So we're going to do the same thing. So number one, uh, the opening sentence of of this section, Paul deals with the idea of an identity. This is who you are, Colossians. This is who you are, Light Church. This is who you are, followers of Jesus. It says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. These three titles that are given here uh, are, are not only powerful in, in a modern sense, but all of these terms call us backwards, that our identity is not something that exists just within yourself. Our identity is actually formed by looking at the rich history of God's narrative of humanity. And so three things that these words draw from. Number one is creation. Number two is Israel. And number three is Jesus himself. Uh, One of my favorite things about the scripture is how it begins. One thing that you notice is that the scriptures do not begin addressing the problem of evil until chapter three. It It doesn't begin with the original sin. It doesn't begin with the curse. It begins with blessing. It begins with God made his creation and at the climax of his creation, he made humanity and he said, it is very good. There was this divine dignity imparted into humanity. The second thing that we see as kind of the main characters are beginning to be um, unearthed through the story of scripture is the nation of Israel that began with one family, Abraham's family. And as this family was called, they grew and grew over hundreds of years until they became the nation of Israel that was called out of slavery in the dramatic exodus of God's mighty hand delivering his people. And uh, in Deuteronomy 7, we see some insight of why Israel was chosen. Listen to this. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. There's an idea of holiness. The Lord your God has chosen you, there's that other word, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. There's the idea of of, of belovedness, of treasuredness. The Lord, this is important, the Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So when, when Paul says, in his letter to the Colossians, that you are a chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Immediately, if they have any context of the Jewish people, they're realizing that what Paul is saying is, you're the new Israel. You are the people of God. And as you look back at Israel's history, there's something significant about about their identity. It's not just that God chose them and loved them and called them, but it's why he chose them. 
And it says it right here explicitly in Deuteronomy. It wasn't because of their strength, their numbers. It wasn't because everyone would have assumed it was them. It was the exact opposite. It was because they had no power, no numbers, no significance. In an ancient society, God says, you're my people. And why this is good news for us is for as someone who's been called into this new family, adopted into the family of Christ, none of your past, none of your upbringing, none of your own mistakes, none of your sin, none of your parents' failures define your identity. It's so much richer and deeper than that. It goes all the way back into Israel's history of saying, listen, I know you were the smallest. I know you were the most insignificant, but you're mine. You belong to me. You've been chosen. You are dearly loved. You're a holy people, a nation of priests. And so Paul is giving that over to us, to the Colossians, the followers of Jesus. That's our, our inheritance. And the third one is not just creation, not just the nation of Israel, but it's actually the person of Jesus Christ. These words are used to describe Jesus. I mean, isn't that just mind-blowing? I, I want to just kind of focus in on this idea of dearly loved. The, the ESV describes it as you are the beloved this is the same word in John 3.35. It says, The Father loves agapeo, the Son, and has placed everything in His hands. You, the richness of God's love for you is tied not just to the people of God in Israel, not just to the creation of humanity. It's tied to Jesus Himself. John 17, I'm sorry, John 16 actually describes, 17, I was right the first time, describes that, we are loved by the Father with the same love in which He loved Jesus. And so, out the gate today, we need to remember that what does it mean for us to be raised with Christ? It means that our identity is a chosen, holy, beloved people. Um, I was thinking about when uh, Jen and I first started dating, early on in marriage, we would go on these family vacations with her family. And very quickly I realized her family vacations looked a little bit different than ours. Ours would look like relaxing, like vacations should be. Her family vacations looked like a version of the Olympics um, that just didn't quite stop and there weren't gold medals. Um, just shame if you couldn't hold up just for someone like me. And so we would go on vacation to the Northwest and all of a sudden we'd wake up and like, hey, we're going to canoe across the Puget Sound. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Or oh, all of a sudden we're going to be, oh, you see that mountain? We're going to hike up there. Um, that's an amazing idea. I remember one time hiking up this mountain and I'm trying to survive. Like I'm just trying to suck enough oxygen into my lungs to get me up the mountain. All the while, Jen's dad, you know, more than twice my age at the time is doing Laps. He's literally running ahead, taking pictures, running back, checking on me to see if I'm doing okay. And we get to the top and there's a picture of him standing on, on like the top of the mountain, like Rocky Balboa. And I'm literally not staged, laying down, trying not to lose my lunch. And I just thought this was like just different family dynamics until they did one of those um, DNA tests from like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. And one of the results came back that their family has an abnormal amount of fast twitch muscles. Uh, that was a new term for me, did some research. It turns out that over 90% of Olympic athletes have what are called fast twitch muscles, uh, which means that their ability to uh, 
to progress to do things like sprints are significantly higher than those with what are called slow twitch muscles, which I'm not a scientist. I'm guessing those are probably my makeup. Um, and so the, the identity that involved Jen's family when we did that, when that DNA test was done with one of her siblings, all of a sudden it made sense because like, oh, this isn't just that you guys like sports. It's not just because you're competitive. You are hardwired to do this. You were designed by God to do this. And I think in the same way, Paul's just not saying you should be loving, you're, you should be holy. He's saying, no, you are hardwired. You are infused with the heritage, the story, the spiritual DNA of the divine human creation, of the nation of Israel, of Jesus himself. You have been called with a rich, rich identity. You are chosen. You are holy. You are the beloved of Christ. Henry Nouwen says, Jesus came to announce to us that an identity based on success, popularity, and power is a false identity. It is an illusion. Loudly and clearly, he says, you are not what the world makes you, but you are the beloved of God. What's amazing is that as, as Paul talks about this rich identity, he then calls us to practice it and to walk it out, which leads to our second point. We are to be loving. Not only are we the beloved, we are to be loving. He says, clothe yourselves, and he lists these five virtues with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And says that bear with each other. Another time this is used in translations in the New Testament, it says literally put up with. I just kind of like that. Put up with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So if you remember last week, Paul lists out these five vices of, of anger, rage, malice, slander, lying. And now he's going to list five virtues. Um, this idea of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And as he's listing these, he's showing the, the juxtaposition of the two. This is, you're to take these things off, but you are to put these things on. Now, that phrase, put on, is intentionally used by Paul. It's, it's the language of clothing. Now, if you uh, were to do a quick Google search on ancient Palestinian clothing, uh, there is two primary garments. There is the inner garment and there is the outer garment. Uh, the inner garment would have been uh, similar to what you'd almost look like a nightgown, but it's a little bit more form-fitting. Uh, when there was manual labor being done, this is what you wore. Uh, but anytime you were in public, this is what you wore. If you didn't wear this, it would be the equivalent of you walking around naked. But that wasn't just what you wore. You also had this outer garment. The inner garment was, the, was called the ketheneth, and the outer garment was called the simla. And the simla was a thicker, more durable, seamless um, overcoat that you would wear during the day, and then at night you'd use it to sleep with. And so when Paul lists these things here, there's an interesting thing that he, after, after these five virtues, says, put this on. At the very end, you might have noticed, it says, over all these virtues put on love. This is another clothing analogy. So meaning, um, there's an outer coat. 
And everything that you're doing, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, all of these virtues, they represent the inner garment, the inner motivation, the work of the Spirit. It's, it's not by accident that these words are, we also find in Galatians 5, uh, when it, the fruits of the Spirit. This is the inner working of someone who's been raised with Christ. But when someone looks at you, they can't see your motivation. They can't see your inner life. What they see is your outer workings. And what Paul says is this outer working is summed up by love. So let me just give you just a word on each of these. The kethoneth, the inner garment, is to be marked by compassion. The King James Version literally translates bowels of mercy. Uh, which is actually a pretty accurate translation because the Greek words here, two words combined, it's, it's the word stomach and mercy. And it's, it's a deep-rooted feeling of sympathy and love. The word kindness denotes the goodness that is found with God. It's what Romans 3 says turns us to repentance. Uh, the word humility is an interesting word. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2 defines Christ's whole attitude. Matthew Henry describes humility as the soul that has lost its pride in the discovery of the mercy of its own salvation. Next to it, on purpose, is the word gentleness. Uh, that word gentle, my, it, it, it's not a bad translation, but it's not what we think of when it comes to gentle. It, it really means others-centered. It refers to this idea of not taking hold of your own rights, your own power, but rather choosing to operate in, in, in that. Now, what's fascinating about this idea of humility and gentleness, these are the two verbs that Jesus uses to describe his own heart. Remember that passage in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I'm what? Gentle and humble in heart. It is the only time in the four Gospels we see Jesus reference his heart. Think about that. What's the heart of Jesus like? Well, we only have one verse on that. And it's a heart that's humble and a heart that's gentle. And so I think it's not by accident. Paul says, this is your inner life. If you are to be raised with Christ, your heart is to be marked with humility, not pride. Your heart is to be marked with gentleness, uh, not selfishness, not, not power. And lastly, he says that we would be marked with patience. N.T. Wright says, If kindness refers to our basic approach to people, so patience refers to the kind of reaction we should display towards them. And so this is that, that inner garment, if you will. People might not be able to see these things, and, and some of them kind of overlap, but this is an inner working of the Spirit of God. But there is the simla, the simla, the outer garment. Now, people look, they might be like, it seems like they're motivated by humility. It seems like the Spirit's really working some gentleness in their life. They might just look at that person like, that's such a loving person. Now, what's interesting about the simla in, in ancient cultures, the outer garment marked your status in society, it marked your power in society. It was the definitive thing about you. When someone looked at you from across the town, across the road, they would say, oh, that's who they are in context of our, of our social grouping. And Paul says, you should be marked by, defined by, your status should be viewed by one thing, and it's love. I cannot overemphasize this. If there is one thing 
that people could say about our church, our community. We don't get to pick that. Jesus did. Through the writings of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, your outer garment, the things people see, they should recognize the number one thing about you is love. That is the most vital thing that we are called to. And I love this. After he talks about this idea, this outer garment of love being put on, recognizable to the world, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. If you ever wonder why, why do we spend time worshiping? Why do we spend time preaching on Sundays? Uh, it's, it's right here. It, it says this is what we are to do. Let the peace of Christ, which why, by the way is more than tranquility, it's actually the act of atonement on the cross. It is what makes us peace with God. That reality. Let it rule your heart. Let the gospel rule your heart. And what's their natural response? Thankfulness. Matter of fact, you'll see that verb three times in this short passage. Be thankful, be grateful, have thanksgiving. And then it talks about teach. This is what we're doing right now. If you're still watching this, you're, you are, we are obeying scripture. We are being formed and taught by the word of God. But the second thing it says, sing. Sing psalms and hymns with thankfulness in your heart. D.A. Carson, who has a wonderful commentary, says this, The point is that the thanksgiving and sing should be heartfelt, sincere, proceeding from the inner being of each singer. Um, this is such a, a significant thing for us as, as a church. Who are we as people who've been raised with Christ? Well, we have a rich identity that we are the beloved. We have a strong purpose, and that is to be loving towards the world around us. And lastly, I love it. It says, it, says, it calls us to life. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. Teach and sing with this inward passion, with thanksgiving. And I would just encourage you, even in the midst of, of maybe circumstances that would want to speak to the opposite, You've been raised with Christ. You are chosen. You're holy. You are the beloved of Christ. You have been so formed by the love of God that it calls us to love others. And as we do that, I'm just, I'm just personally praying that our church would sing louder. We would lean in closer to the word of God. That we would express every attribute of our life. It literally says, whatever you do, if you are a nurse, if you're a student, if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, if you work in accounting, if you run a small business or the CEO of a company, do it to the Lord. Do it with life. Do it with thankfulness in your heart, marked by the love of Jesus. This is, um, this is who we are. This is not a false optimism. It's not a false positivity. It is a deeply rooted shift of reality because of what Jesus has done for us. So I'm just going to go ahead and pray for you, pray for us as a community, 
that we would not only put off sin, we would put on the new self, our rich identity, our call to love, and a life fully given over to Christ. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you that you have called us to yourself and that we get to walk in that identity. Lord, thank you so much. You called us not only to change our identity, but to change how we view the world. Would you help us to love people so well that when they look at us, they would see love? And Lord, I pray that whatever we do, in word or deed, Lord, that we would do it for you, Lord God. I pray that our singing would get louder, our listening would become more intent to the word of God, and that there would be a thankfulness and a forgiveness that just runs deep within our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.